It's my privilege this morning to welcome a guest preacher. Hannah Andriadis is uh, a chaplain with Emory University Hospital, a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, and is under the care of our uh, presbytery in the ordination process uh, in the EPC, uh, which is the denomination that we are a part of. Um, and there, a couple of months ago, when we began kind of mapping out this series on prayer, when we got to the idea of prayer as lament, um, I started praying and thinking through who might be uh, a good person to come and deliver this message. And uh, pretty clearly, Hannah came to mind. And so I'm very grateful for that. So I want to invite you to give a big All Souls welcome to Hannah Andreadis as she is making her preaching debut here at All Souls. Not her preaching debut of all time. Good morning. It is so good to be with you, and I'm excited to have an opportunity uh, to share a word with you this morning. Uh, as Stephen mentioned, I am a hospital chaplain for Emory, and as such, I am in pastoral ministry, but preaching is not really a big part of my job. Uh, when I first met Stephen back in 2020, we met together to talk about ministry and seminary and Decatur and all of those things. And um, our meeting ended and I was just about to leave. I had thrown away my coffee cup, was walking out the door and Stephen says, oh, hey, um, do you preach? And I said, well, I almost got out of it. I said, I can, I can preach, but just call me only if you really need me, okay? So I appreciate his willingness to wait two entire years to call me up on my offer. Um, but actually, I really appreciate um, his and the staff's discernment. This is something that I think is really important and an often overlooked part of our faith. Um, so I'm grateful for this opportunity. We've been walking through this Lenten season together, talking about prayer. And today we are going to talk about prayer as lament. And I know some of you saw that topic in the study guide and you thought, ooh, that is the last thing I want to do this morning. Uh, the world is heavy and difficult and sad and it's really cold out and it's daylight savings. Like, I'm a pass. Um, and to those of you who still came, I want to say that's okay. I get you. That's fair. And I just want to offer you the permission and encouragement that Stephen offered us a few weeks ago to pray as you can and not as you can't. So if today needs to be more of an intellectual exercise, that's okay. And I hope uh, that you can still find some space to hear what God might have for you, even and especially in the midst of what's difficult for you. And so there were also probably some others of you who heard this topic and were like, finally, I am ready. I have a laundry list of complaints and sufferings and wrongdoings, and I am ready to let them rip. Sign me up. And for you, you are also welcome here. And I hope that today we'll offer you some direction about what to do with all that we bring into this space. Regardless of which camp you're in, or if maybe you feel somewhere in the middle, I think we can all agree that it has been a really difficult couple of years. We have shared in collective suffering through pandemic and lockdowns and sickness and mass casualties through political polarization and deep displays of racial injustice, through acts of war and violence and hatred. And that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of your own personal suffering, the loss, the betrayal, the hurt, the grief, 
the illness, the trauma that I know each one of you has endured and walked through. And so, yes, it feels difficult and heavy to talk about all of this, but I also think it's really important and that God has something to say about it. So in my work, I have the privilege to walk alongside people and I bear witness to a lot of suffering and there are days where it is really hard, but it's also really holy and beautiful and I can't tell you how thankful I am that this is the work God has called me to. Um, for those of you who haven't spent a lot of time in the hospital or wonder like what does a chaplain do all day, um, I basically get to be a pastor for the hospital. So I get to care for our patients and families as they are there doing all of the things you imagine happen in a hospital. Um, but I also get the great privilege of caring for our staff, our nurses, our techs, our doctors, our janitors, all the people who make the hospital run. I get to walk along with them as they also figure out how to cope with the suffering and loss that is inevitable in our medical setting, but has been so very present to all of us over these past few years. So I've seen some things, I've observed some things, and something I've observed is that there tends to be about three different ways that people respond to suffering, just as humans. And this feels a little silly, but I'm sure many of you have heard or remember the children's song or book, Going on a Bear Hunt. If you don't, it's this little call and response about going on a bear hunt, gonna catch a big bear, I'm not scared, and it goes on and it goes on. And along the way, these intrepid child bear hunters which is a question was why we're sending children to hunt bears for another day, but they encounter obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. First there's a muddy puddle and then a field of tall grass and then a deep river. And so as they approach their, their obstacles, they pause and they analyze it and then they say, well, can't go over it, can't go under it, can't go around it, gotta go through it. And then you make fun squelchy mud sounds as you pretend to go through the puddle, but that's sort of how I imagine and have seen the ways that we often respond to grief and suffering in our lives. Uh, so if you'll imagine with me, this, our suffering is this hole in the ground here. And there's this first group of people that when we approach suffering, our instinct is we want to go over it. We want to pretend it's not there. Maybe we'll politely acknowledge it, uh, but we don't dare peer deep down inside. And you know these people, and maybe you are this person or have been this person. We say, well, God is good all the time. Or we say, oh, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. Which, there's truth to those things, but I think we know that it's not the things that are going to help us deal with the whole, with the reality of the suffering. So then there's this second group who, when we come up to this obstacle, instead of trying to cover it up or jump over it, we want to go around it. We want to analyze it and intellectualize it and rationalize it and theologize it. And what we end up doing is we walk ourselves around and around and around and around. And at some point we get on some tangent and we end up so far away that we can't even see it anymore. And I just want to say as Presbyterians, I think we are particularly guilty of this one. One of the gifts of our church is that we think deeply about God and about theology. But this is also a place where that thinking and reasoning can be our security blanket. It doesn't help us deal with the reality that the suffering is still there. And then finally, there's this third group of people. And these are the people who, when we approach the suffering, instead of trying to go over it or go around it, 
We strap on our goggles and we dive in headfirst. We embrace, we relish in the realities of suffering so completely that it becomes all-encompassing and smothering and we find ourselves stuck at the bottom of this never-ending pit. And I have to say, I've been there at some moments, especially in the last few years, where this option, it felt so enticing to me. Something about this reckless abandon of giving over to this little nihilistic impulse, this little doubt in my head and in my heart. That just like the other ways of approaching suffering, going under it doesn't work. So what do we do when suffering seems to be part of our everyday reality? What does God say about it? If we can't go over it, and we can't go under it, and we can't go around it, we've got to go through it. And I think that's where biblical lament comes in and offers us something different. Lament offers us a faithful and necessary and formational way to approach suffering. So we're going to finally turn to our text for today um, and read from Psalm 22. And it's sort of a long text, so I'm actually going to read a selection of verses, uh, but I encourage you to go back and read this text in its entirety later this week. Friends, listen and hear God's word for you today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a human. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Well, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display, people stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength, come quickly to help me, deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs, rescue me. From the mouth of lions, save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we thank you for the chance to be together, to study your words, and to practice forming our lives to your will and prayer. Would you be with us in heart and word and deed today? Amen. So I don't know about you, but 
that psalm is not quite what my prayer life looks like. I was raised in the South with a pretty high sense of God's sovereignty, and so it feels a bit uncomfortable to me to lodge such harsh complaints and accusations against God. When I first read this text, I said, am I even allowed to say some of these things? And even in seasons of great suffering, these words have felt kind of inaccessible to me. Some of you may recognize the first verse of this psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as the verse that Jesus quoted as he hung on the cross. According to the Gospel of Matthew, this may have been the very last thing that Christ said before he died. And so, honestly, at times it's felt a little disrespectful or irreverent for me to use those same words. I mean, my suffering is surely not the same as Christ on the cross. But I think what's important to know is that, yes, Jesus' suffering was unique and ultimate in a way that is different from our own. But in some ways, it is just like our own. And that Christ was actually participating in a long human tradition of lament, and I think inviting us to as well. These are actually not originally Jesus' words. These are the words of the psalmist attributed to King David, and they were probably written about a thousand years before Christ was even born. And so while the experience of Jesus' suffering and death closely mirror and fit these words, they had been shared and prayed and cried for hundreds and hundreds of years by the Jewish people as a way to cope with their own exile and sufferings. And suffering is this deeply human experience. We, we know and affirm that God is good and loving and all-powerful, but we also have to know and affirm that the world is not always. That sin has entered the equation and changed and warped our reality. That, that now includes so much tragedy and suffering that even though Christ has ultimately redeemed that suffering, we still have to live in it in the now. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Walter Brueggemann, who actually spent about half of his career here in Decatur, Georgia. He was a professor at Columbia Seminary. Uh, he talks about this very human experience of the union of faith and suffering, this reality that we live in. And he talks about it as a process of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So we've got orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And in the modern Western Christian church, it's us, we are really good at orientation and reorientation. We love this. We go from strength to strength, from victory to victory. And there's times where that's really important that we can do that and hold up the strength and the victory of God in the face of darkness. But there's also some real significance and importance to dealing with the disorientation, the stuff in the middle. The book of Psalms is often called the prayer book of God's people, but it might surprise you that at least one-third of the Psalms are considered Psalms of Lament. We much prefer Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, to Psalm 22's, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Brueggemann talks about it like this, and this is a long quote, I apologize, you just have to listen to me read it. He says this, he says, Much Christian piety and spirituality is romantic and unreal in its positiveness. 
As children of the Enlightenment, we have censored and selected around the voice of darkness and disorientation, but such a way not only ignores the Psalms, it is a lie in terms of our own experience. The Psalms are a canonical book of hope, but the hope is rooted precisely in the midst of loss and darkness, where God is surprisingly present. The Jewish reality of exile, the Christian confession of crucifixion and cross, the honest recognition that there is an untamed darkness in our life that must be embraced, all of that is fundamental to the gift of new life. So if you are willing, let's dig in a little deeper into prayer as lament and see what it might say to our real experiences of suffering. So I want to offer you today three things about lament that are important. That lament is faithful, that lament is necessary, and that lament is actually a formational response to suffering. So firstly, lament is faithful. Uh, part of me wanted to start this sermon and say, well, look, Jesus did it. We're good, it's faithful, move on. But there's more to say here, and I think it's really important because I think what makes lament faithful are two things. First is that it's directed to God, and the second is that it's really honest. The opening line of this psalm is significant. My God, my God. This long, irreverent, demanding, angry, desperate psalm this litany is not just directed out at whoever will listen or at our nosy neighbor who wants to know. Rather, this is directed right at the very source of where the psalmist believes that his pain is coming from, to God. He thinks it's from God's lack of redemption and rescue, God's lack of action in the world that has left the psalmist feeling forsaken, like a worm, like their bones are out of joint. And so this accusation and interrogation of God and God's intent feels a bit uncomfortable for us who are unfamiliar with lament, and it feels really uncomfortable for those of us who want to go right over our experiences of suffering, who want to focus just on the orientation and reorientation and close our eyes to the disorientation. But if we do this, we are going to walk through life with our eyes closed. Because suffering is all around us. We can't go over it. We've got to go through it. And lament is a faithful way to do this because we're presenting it to God. Even in the moment when perhaps we are uncertain if God will act or if we're really honest, perhaps uncertain if God can act. It's when we watch the news day after day and see the atrocities in Ukraine and we wonder, where is God in all of this? This would be a really good time for God to act in the world. Or when I sit with yet another young patient whose cancer diagnosis looks grim and the anticipatory weight of loss hangs in the air as we look at the framed picture of her three young children on the bedside and all I have in me in that moment is uncertainty. Is God good all the time, really? Because it doesn't feel like it. And I don't know about you, but even thinking that question, much less saying it in front of you in church, feels a little wrong to some parts of me. But I think lament is the opportunity for us to ask those questions. Where is God? Is God good? But to ask them faithfully, 
to a God who is big enough to handle them, to a God that we are in relationship with, that we have history with, to a God who even showed us how to ask those very questions. The second reason why our limit is faithful is that it's honest. And there is this sense of deceitfulness when we see and experience suffering, when we find ourselves fuming and raging about injustice in the world, and then we go to God and we say, well, I'm feeling a little frustrated today, God. Or when we are just engulfed by grief and loss and we can't get ourselves out of bed in the morning and we say to God, oh, well, I'm okay, just a little under the weather. It's not like God doesn't know. Who do we think we are when again and again we try to hide our true feelings from the very God who created them, the God who came to earth incarnate and walked around in them and felt them himself? Doesn't it seem more faithful and a little easier just to bring it all to God and lay it out honestly? Cole Arthur Riley, uh, who's the author of Black Liturgy, she describes it like this. She says, true lament is not born from that trite sentiment that the world is bad, but rather from a deep conviction that it is worthy of goodness. Friends, lament is the faithful cry of our hearts, the longing for the goodness of humanity and creation as it should be, as God created it to be worthy of. And so when we are presented with suffering, we can't go over it. We've got to go through it. And so lament is faithful. Lament is also necessary. The reality of being a human is that we have And as much as many of us would like to avoid them, uh, trust me, if you are familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a type 7. Um, if you are not familiar with the Enneagram, that basically means I will do any and everything humanly possible to avoid my own negative emotions. Um, and I am aware it's a bizarre career choice that I have made. Um, but I've learned a lot about it. And what I've learned is that we can't go around them. We've got to go through them. We can't hide from them. We can't avoid them. Even if we think we're avoiding our feelings, I promise you, you're not. They're going to come out sideways every time. When I did my first internship as a chaplain, I uh, can assure you it is only by God's grace that my now husband continued to date me uh, because I didn't have the language of lament in my prayer vocabulary. I was doing my best to work around and intellectualize and rationalize all of the suffering that was put in front of me day after day after day. And then for some strange reason, whenever I tried to be a normal human being, I was a terror. I was moody and snappy and angry and dissatisfied. I would cry at the drop of a hat. I was sleeping 16 hours a night. One particular day comes to mind, I had just worked a 30-hour shift full of suffering and trauma and death and despair, and I was like at my very limit. And sweet, sweet Jeremy, um, y'all, he didn't have a car at this point, but he took a 20-mile bus ride, located Chick-fil-A somewhere on the route, snuck into and wandered around the parking garage of my hospital, which is certainly illegal, uh, and was waiting at my car with lunch for me when I got off my shift. And isn't that cute? So cute and so thoughtful. And um, his, this act of kindness was met by me with absolute boiling rage. 
I was the kind of rage that bubbles over into just inconsolable sobbing. And so I sat in the passenger seat of my car, half yelling at him, half weeping, and like half eating chicken nuggets as he drives me home so I can finally sleep. And, and this is like a silly illustration, but without an outlet for all of that emotion and suffering, I was full up to the brim And all the suffering I was trying to hold was leaking out and poisoning the people around me. I was trying to do it alone, and it it doesn't work. You can't go around it. Lament is necessary because, as Walter Brueggemann describes it, it's a boundary thrown up against our own self-deception. It doesn't permit us to ignore or deny the darkness personally or publicly. Friends, lament is this encounter with our limits, an encounter with our humanity, which is much of what the season of Lent is about. For those of you who've experienced the benefits of really good talk therapy, you know there's something important about the practice of naming our feelings and directing them to a person of authority, even when the problem still exists. And so what better figure of authority than God? which also, this is my shout out to good therapists as well. I would recommend that you find one if you too are a human in the world. Um, But even with really good therapy, lament is still necessary. Rich Velotis, uh, who wrote The Spiritually Formed Life, which many in our church read over the past few months, um, he says this. He says, lamenting is the spiritually mature response to sadness and sorrow. Our spiritual aliveness is not found in our ability to suppress our sadness. Our spiritual aliveness is found in our ability to bring it to God. When we lament, our problems don't magically get fixed, but our lives get spiritually formed. So if you can agree that suffering is real and that you are a human in the world, then lament is necessary. We've got to go through it. In that quote, Rich also gives us an indication about this third and final point about lament, which is that lament is formational. This point is, I think, the most difficult, but also the most important. I wish, I wish so deeply in my bones that lament was this magical formula to fix the problems and sufferings in our lives and in our world. And it's true that lament, I really believe, lament is this vehicle that helps move us from hurt to joy, from darkness to light, from despair to hope, but it isn't a guarantee or a protection from pain. Yes, it has significance in terms of our theological faithfulness, and yes, it certainly has psychological benefits for our necessarily emotional, messy lives, but what lament is not It's not a physical deliverance from the very real reality of our sufferings. If we go back to Brueggemann's model, the orientation, the disorientation, the reorientation, we've talked about how to approach and deal with this move from orientation to disorientation and how to sit here. But now the question is, how do we make that final move? How do we not get stuck in the disorientation? How do we get to reorientation? And ultimately, it's not something we can do. Instead, it's a way that we're formed by God through the practice of lament. You may have noticed this in our reading of the psalm, but the very last line of our text this morning says this. 
I will declare your name to my people, and the assembly I will praise you. It's a bit unexpected. It's this line of praise, and we don't get to know if the psalmist's problem was solved. In fact, it doesn't really seem like it based on the text before. And yet even in the midst of this suffering, the psalmist offers a declaration of praise. One of the most difficult seasons in my own life was a season marked by lament of an important relationship. And perhaps you are familiar or have a relationship like this in your life. One of those most intimate and personal relationships that is marked by sin, by disappointment, by tragedy, by betrayal, by just missing each other over and over again, by heartache and heartbreak. And the reality is that things are not as they should be. And it hurts. And I imagine you know some of what that hurt feels like. And to be honest, these are the places where when I approach suffering, I want to go under it. I want to dive head first and wrap myself up in the totality and power and weight of grief and say, this is certainly too far gone for God to redeem. Because that's easier to me than offering God praise in the midst of my doubt and my hurt and my despair. And so for a long time, that's what I did. But In the face of suffering, ultimately, we can't just go under it. We get stuck. You've got to go through it. So when later I was introduced to and and started practicing lament, it took months, it took years, it took long seasons that I wished would be over, seasons where I forgot what it was like to not be lamenting. There were times I was buried so deep in my own lament that I wondered, is this any better than me just diving in and laying myself down at the bottom of this pit? But then one day I looked around and things were different. There was reorientation, but it wasn't what I expected. See, my lament didn't change the person who I wanted to change. Honestly, God didn't sweep in and redeem all the hurt and damage. God didn't fix what had been broken. But what God did do was slowly and unexpectedly and graciously change me. Those small prayers of praise at the end of lament, even when I didn't feel them, even when I didn't want to say them, even when I didn't believe them, God met me there. And that praise formed and continues to form me. Lament is this formational act that teaches me to look for God in the places where I thought God had long ago abandoned. Lament is forming me to be a person of the resurrection, a person who looks for Christ on the third day, who looks for hope even when I sit deep in the pit of despair, who waits for God even when, honestly, I'm not sure God is going to show up. Friends, when Christ cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The suffering wasn't taken away. His friends and family were left in pain and disappointment and heartbreak. But on the third day, there was new life and there was hope. There was this unexpected turn. God moved his people from the ultimate disorientation to a new orientation, a new way of being. And we lament because we are people of the resurrection. 
This is my last Rugman quote, but he says this. The reason the darkness may be faced and lived in is that even in the darkness, there is one to address. Because this one has promised to be in darkness with us, we find the darkness strangely transformed, not by the power of easy light, but by the power of relentless solidarity. Friends, lament isn't going to fix your problems. It isn't going to put the marriage back together or cure the cancer or stop Putin or get you back all of the time you lost over the last two years. But lament is a chance to be formed by God into a person of hope, to be met in the darkness by a God who knows darkness and sits with us in darkness and has ultimately redeemed and defeated it for us. A God who is unexpectedly and relentlessly faithful to us despite all evidence to the contrary. What makes lament worth it is that it helps us to properly deal with and wrestle with our disorientation so that God can unexpectedly, surprisingly, and in God's own sovereign and frustrating and divine time, help us to emerge from darkness with a new orientation, a new understanding of what is real and who we are and who we are called to be. Lament is faithful. Lament is necessary. Lament is formational. So what do we do with all of this? If you humor me for just another minute, I just want to talk practically about how we can practice biblical lament as a church, how we can pray as we can and not as we can't, and honestly, this is going to look a little different for everyone. I want to offer you briefly a little bit of structure because perhaps like me, you like a little bit of structure. Um, and the Bible gives us some. Over and over we see that there are four parts of biblical lament. First is that lament begins with an address to God. We saw that today, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after this address to God, secondly, there's space for our complaint. And that's most of our psalm today. This is where we have space to pour out our emotions and our conditions and our frustrations and our fear and our rage and our doubt. The psalmist today said, I am a worm. My heart melts within me. I'm surrounded on all sides. You have laid me in the dust of death. And after our complaint, thirdly, there's a request, a petition of God to do something, redeem this, save me, act, be who you say you are. The psalmist here today goes back and calls out all of the ways God has previously acted and says, why aren't you here now? And that's part of it. And then finally, there is some fourth, some offer of praise. Every psalm of lament, with the exception of one, there is a line of praise at the end. No matter how feeble or how uncertain, something that points to hope, that points to reorientation, and for us, that points us to Christ's resurrection and redemption of the world. So I just invite you in this season of Lent to try on a practice of prayer as lament, as you can and not as you can't. Please take care of yourself. For some of you, that might look like just offering up one really honest line of complaint to God. Just recognition that this is really hard and this is not how it should be. 
See how that feels. For others of you, maybe this is a practice of reading the Psalms. There are a lot of Psalms of lament. And they're meant to be prayed and shared. So try them on, read them, see if they feel like they apply. See if they help you connect to God in a different way. And for others of you, those of you who brought your laundry list this morning, perhaps you're ready to write your own prayers of lament and offer them to God. And so I invite you to try it. Use this structure if it's helpful and and reach out to God and see where God may be. Friends, suffering is real and difficult and heavy. But because of the work of Christ, suffering doesn't get the last word. Lament is our opportunity to respond to suffering in a faithful, necessary, and formational way. It is finally an act of hope, an act of trust in the redemptive work of God in the world, despite how it looks and it feels in this moment. So as we close our time together, uh, it felt appropriate, since I'm asking you to practice, for me to practice with you. Uh, Practice to pray as I can and not as I can't. In writing prayers of lament is a regular part of my work and my own spiritual formation and my emotional well-being. Um, And so this is one that I wrote a few weeks ago, earlier this year, after a particularly heavy week. And it's, it's specific to my experience, but I imagine there are some themes here that you will be able to join in lamenting. So, friends, will you join me in this prayer of lament, and then Stephen will come and lead us in communion. Let's pray. Friday, 1.40 p.m. My God, my God. This week, I held a mom while her 27-year-old son coded and died on the other side of a glass wall. He ended his life because the suffering of this virus and this world was too much for his tired soul. My God, are you here? This week, I stood silently between a husband and wife as their baby died in their arms. For seven days of fighting for life too much to bear for her tiny body, Just like the other five children, they lost too soon. My God, are you here? This week, I whispered prayers in broken Spanish to a young man as I helped him into the bed to support his wife's limp frame because as strong as her shoulders once were, they could no longer hold her own head. We prayed for their small children and his impending deportation as her breath finally slid from her lips. My God. Are you here? This week, I slowly walked laps down the halls with a woman who cleans the room's tears dripping from her eyes because it is impossible to sanitize away the suffering of person after person after person just to have those same spaces filled again with the familiar stains of death and pain. We didn't speak because there wasn't anything to say. My God you hear? This week I leaned in close to a woman fighting for breath and fighting for something human as she watched her hopes fall away with her diminishing oxygen levels, multiple layers of masks muddling my assurance that it will be okay, a platitude I try not to offer unless it's the only thing left. My God, are you here? 
This week I wept into my husband's arms and drank in that same refrain over and over again, hungry for its promises like lungs for oxygen. It will be okay. Will it be okay? My God, are you here? But the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Amen.